Would you take your Bibles, please, and uh, turn to, Luke, uh, to uh, Revelation chapter 2. You'll need those and your sermon note sheets. Thank you, Lord, for the models that we see here in these seven churches and how you would speak to them. And we are asking you, Lord, through the study of your word to speak to us. As a corporate body, we want to hear from you. And as individuals, we want to hear from you. And so we open our hearts and our minds. Speak, Lord. Your children are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. In my early years as pastor at Bethel Church in Owatonna, it was my practice to go to the door at the end of the service to greet the people who were leaving. And there was an older lady who would go by me and always thank me for the message. And then I noticed with um, great regularity, she would add these words. Pastor, thank you for that message. My husband really needed that. I think she was joking with me. Um, I thought about that and laughed about it down through the years, but honestly, you know, that points a bony finger right back at me. I think it was Haddon Robinson, the great preaching professor at Denver Seminary, who used to say, one of the first jobs a preacher has is to make sure he is letting himself be challenged by his sermon. Bruce Hollinger has said, man is ever blind to his own faults, but fox quick at perceiving those of others. And I think we all struggle with that, don't we? How many times have you found yourself in the middle of a sermon saying, I sure hope my spouse is listening? Or that person on the other side of the room or down the aisle, man, they need that. Well, I want to challenge you today. Uh, we all struggle with this, and Jesus challenged us that we be careful to make sure that the Word of God is applying to us. Last Sunday, I shared with you the me versus them temptation. If Lakewood has a problem, it's them, not me. Another variety of how we deflect guilt and we keep from recognizing our own need for repentance and change is when we allow ourselves to think, if I'm wrong, they're more wrong. You know that God has led us at Lakewood these days into a journey of examining our several chapters of congregational pain and asking God, where might we have gone wrong that these things should happen uh, in our church? But listen, this is about us. It's about us, not them. And in each of our hearts, we need to do the work to say, Lord, what about me? It is so crucial as we work through to restoration as a church that each of us do the hard work of looking into our own hearts, looking into our own past attitudes, looking into our past conversations, and ask, Lord, where have I been wrong? Didn't our Savior warn us that it's so easy to ignore the plank in our own eye while trying to take the speck out of his eye? Perhaps the greatest and plainest revival song is that old spiritual, it's me, it's me, it's me, O oh Lord. 
standing in the need of prayer. Because God will regularly, often in the life of a growing Christian, say, no, not that way, my child. And repentance is hearing and recognizing and turning around and going his way. So how open are you to hear from God today? Today we're looking at the fourth letter Jesus dictates to the Apostle John in these early chapters of Revelation. In his exalted, eternal, glorified state, Jesus, the Lord, is walking amongst the candelabra, examining these churches that he loves so deeply. His churches, they were real churches in real places. And John says that Jesus told him, write this down and tell my churches what I have to say. Today, the church in Thyatira. What should we know about Thyatira? Well, it's the smallest of the seven cities that we will study. Kind of a blue-collar, manufacturing, industrial town. Kind of think Flint, Michigan, maybe. It was famous for the bronze work that they did in that city. But it was not highly regarded in its day. It didn't have the beautiful Acropolis, the hill on the outside of town like the other cities that we've studied or the gorgeous marble temples that we've noticed at Ephesus and Pergamum. It was a major capital of of trade unions and guilds, a major site also of the worship of Zeus and Apollo. But it's probably the least significant of the seven cities, a smaller town in an un impressive location, but it's actually the longest of the church letters in this text. And that's a great reminder to us. There are no insignificant places in God's view of things. And you might think, well, we're just a small Northwoods town up here. Oh, no. Oh, no. The work of God is not just reserved for the great metropolitan churches. Jesus loves and cares for this church no less than that he cares for any great Twin Cities church you could name. No insignificant places, no forgotten churches. And here are the sketches of this outline that we've seen uh, often in each of these churches. The credentials and salutation first. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now these believers would have recognized this kind of phrase. They knew burnished, polished, shining bronze. They knew the flames of the forge and the smeltering furnace. Jesus, his eyes like fire, nothing escapes his gaze. His feet gleaming bronze, reflecting light, shining truth wherever he steps. And here's the commendations to them. They were impressive. Lots to be impressed with this church. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. This is a church with a lot going for it. Lots of love, 
demonstrations of faith, outreaching service, perseverance. There's that word again, that hupomeno that we like, hanging in there. And more, they are growing in their acts of service and res uh, resolution. The latter works exceed the first. They're getting stronger. And so if you move to Thyatira, this is a church that you would undoubtedly consider attending because a quick look shows this to be an impressive church. And there is so much remarkable and inspiring about this congregation. But similar to what we saw in Pergamum, their discernment and their doctrine didn't match their devotion. Loving church, compassionate church, strong church, but now come the hard words of criticism. Constructive criticism is for the purpose of bringing them back to the Lord, healing their fellowship, restoring Jesus' favor. Jesus loves this church, but in a critical area, they've kind of gone off the rails. And here is somewhat similar to what we saw at Pergamum last week. But I have this against you. I'm not pleased with this. That you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Who is this Jezebel and what is she about? Well, she was undoubtedly a real person. Jezebel was not her real name. Jezebel is a symbolic name. It's kind of like you'd say, uh, he's a real Judas. You know what you're saying. Judas was a disloyal, turncoated, backstabber. And in, or if somebody gets called a, a Benedict Arnold, you know that they're describing someone who's a traitor. What's a Jezebel? Well, it harkens back to the woman who was the most evil queen of the most evil king in the Old Testament. Jezebel, a Canaanite princess, was married to King Ahab as part of a compromising treaty with a nation that God had told his people to have nothing to do with them. And as queen, with her political power and religious influence and financial means, she brought in this alternative spirituality into Israel, Baal worship. And she sponsored thousands of priests of Baal and even outlawed the worship of the one true God, the Lord. And the priests of Baal, uh, there's probably not a better way to say it, they were sexual perverts, and the worship of Baal was in great debauchery and orgies, and they even practiced child sacrifice, human sacrifice. This is dark stuff. You can read about it in 1 Kings. Dark stuff, wouldn't you agree? In fact, this is demonic. And the original Jezebel is judged severely by God. She's later in life thrown out of a window and trampled by horses and her body is eaten by dogs. You don't hear many girls named Jezebel today. Um, wow, it's an ugly picture. 
So the name, symbolic name Jezebel, indicates someone who is controlling and manipulative and seductive and will seduce you into evil that will destroy you. I have this against you, Jesus says. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Remember what we talked about last week? The trade unions, the guilds in Pergamum. Same with the bronze workers here in, uh, in this city. Each craft had its patron pagan god, and their meetings of their guild or their union were organized around the worship of these pagan gods as they prayed, oh, God, whatever, be, look with favor upon the work of my hands, but they were very sexualized events. They drank to excess and engaged in drunken orgies. One of the commentators said it was kind of a cross between a labor union and a frat house, if you can get that picture. There were blood sacrifices, not human sacrifices here, but then they would sit down to eat a sacramental meal of the meat that had been sacrificed to the pagan god, and these guild meetings and parties were just part of everyday life in Thyatira. If you lived and worked there, they were going on around you often. Can you understand that this created problems, struggle, crisis for Christians? There was a huge pressure to fit into the values and the lifestyle of the culture. Jesus' followers are committed to sexual purity, to worship the, only the one true God. So there's crisis. If we don't go along and do this stuff, we're going to get kicked out of the guild, and I'll lose my way of earning a living. I'll lose my livelihood. I'll lose my home, I'll be an outcast from society if I don't participate in these guild meetings. And along comes a woman who calls herself a prophetess, says she speaks for the Lord and says, listen, new teaching, pagan practices, no problem. You, you can have both. You can be a Christian, but you don't have to follow Jesus' teaching about sexuality and faithfulness in marriage. You can do what they do in those temples. You can have faith in Christ and fornicate with the pagans. You, you can do both. Convenient? Even more, it appears if you take another level deeper into this text, that there was a small group of Christians who got together to bring this stuff into the fellowship of the church. And Jesus says, I have this against you. You tolerate her in this false teaching and this behavior. Some of you have been seduced by this doctrine of compromise, and I've warned her and I've given her time to turn around and go God's way 
towards sexual purity, but she does not want to repent of her immorality and severe judgment is going to come upon her. And severe judgment will also come upon all who engage in immorality with her unless they repent. Hear me. There is risk and danger like this for Christians today. Our modern society tends to complicate sexuality, but let me tell you, Jesus' teaching on sex was very simple. Matthew 19, have you not heard that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Pretty narrow and simple for Jesus. Your sexuality is not multiple choice if you're a Christian. This is not do your own thing. This is not anything goes. One man, one woman in a lifelong commitment of faithfulness. One flesh. That, Jesus says, is what God will bless. And if you're a Jesus follower... You better be a Jesus follower. And to this otherwise lovely church, Jesus now says, I have this against you. You tolerate this woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality. You tolerate her. Tolerance has become a supreme virtue in modern society, hasn't it? And here's our challenge. We need to be like Jesus and to follow Jesus. And let me tell you that Jesus loved and cared for people whose lifestyle was way off from godliness. He had lots of relationships, good relationships, caring relationships with people who didn't know God and didn't walk with God. He loved them and he accepted them so much so that he was known, Matthew 11, as a friend, a friend of sinners. Sinners enjoyed his company. He accepted people even if he didn't approve of their behavior. And Jesus shows us so clearly that you can accept people without approving their behavior. You can treat them respectfully and lovingly even if you know their lifestyle is contrary to your convictions and the word of God. In our relationship with people outside of Christ, outside the church, Jesus calls us to befriend them and love them and seek to share Christ with them, not to criticize and condemn them for the brokenness of their lives. They need Jesus, not our judgment. They need our compassion, not our criticism. And you don't need to clean up your life before you come to Jesus. 
just as I am without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me. I come to Jesus just as I am in the mess of my brokenness as a lost person desperately needing Jesus. And he forgives me and cleans me and changes me. Praise God. He'll do a better job of changing them than, than you can. He does a great job of not only forgiving, but cleansing the minds and behaviors of those who will come to him. But if we are going to follow Jesus, Christians, and be like Jesus, we better not, cannot, will not tolerate sexual immorality within the family of God, within the fellowship of the church. We spoke about that last Sunday. We want to offer help and support to all who want to move away from sin into the kind of life that pleases the Lord. And we're well on our way towards developing a strategy and a ministry to those who want to be clean from pornography and want to be done with it. We'd love to help. And if you need to get some help to bring your sexuality into line with the goodness God desires for you, we will help. No problem. We want to help. But Jesus stands firm against tolerating sexual immorality within the fellowship of his church. I have this against you. Jesus himself says he's going to judge it severely. Whomever this woman Jezebel is, she's been warned and she's been given time to repent and turn around. But she apparently is unwilling. And Jesus says a bed of suffering awaits her and awaits all who have been committing adultery with her. There's even death in the warning. See that? This is not something Jesus winks at. Turn around. Repent, he says. Turn back to the Lord or disaster awaits. It's just a matter of time. And for whomever this Jezebel is, disaster is coming soon. Can you understand this, though, as you look at the larger picture? Accepting people doesn't mean approving of their behavior, regardless of what the world says. And Jesus himself won't let us be tolerant of bringing the world's standards of sexual behavior into the fellowship of God's people. And one of the great struggles of elders and pastors is to know that we need to be loving and patient with people who sin. But to be ruthless towards sin in the body of Christ. Sin that would result in God's judgment on the church. Sin that will affect damage in the very people God asks us to love. Well, this is uncomfortable stuff, isn't it? I would have just as soon skipped over this sermon. But here's the truth. 
It's painful to have to deal in church discipline with those who insist on misbehaving in the body of Christ, but not dealing with it is going to be more painful in the end. Here in Thyatira, Jesus counsels them to handle the better pain of cleansing the church rather than to have to deal with the worse pain of God's wrath against the whole church. Minor surgery now or major surgery then? And many are the churches that have avoided the minor pain only to experience major pain later. Now the crucial counsel, and we've got to notice again that while Jesus holds the entire church responsible for sin in their midst, he acknowledges that some of them didn't buy into Jezebel's seduction. Verse 24, Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. That is an interesting phrase. I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. Now, it's probably the case here, as it seemed often in the early church, that there was a group that was kind of a, an initiates-only club. And they had insider wisdom, or so they claimed, wisdom that they only shared within their little group. And they had insider jargon, words that only the insiders in the group understand, Inner, uh, insider experiences, and insider-only ceremonies. Greek, Greek society had this in large measure, and we know them today as the Greek mystery religions. You may have run across that phrase. Secret societies. The Greeks loved these. Gnosticism, a false doctrine that we mentioned last week, became one of the strongest secret societies, false doctrines in the early church. There was a lot about Gnosticism that seemed to have some connections to Christianity. John calls it Satan's deep secrets. And I want you to notice that though this may have been a minority in the church, Jesus' displeasure is with the entire church. Although most didn't participate with Jezebel, neither did they put a stop to her. When it comes to outright immorality in the church, non-participation is not enough. Tolerating it invites Jesus' displeasure and discipline as part of the body, even faithful believers bear the burden of corporate discipline. Nevertheless, he says, hold fast, stay firm until I come, until the final word is spoken. Now, the conditional promise. Let's look at that. Verse 26. 
To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one, that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If that sounds familiar to you, it should, because Jesus is quoting here from Psalm 2. The Lord promises that when he returns, those who have been faithful to him are promised a promotion, greater authority. And that appears in several of Jesus' parables, Matthew 25, Luke 19. One day, Jesus is going to say to those who have lived faithfully for him, well done, good and faithful Servant, you have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Well done in little things. I will put you in charge of many things. What the Lord is saying is that leaders who have led well will be granted greater oversight when the kingdom comes in all of its fullness. And to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the greatest goal of my life. And I think it would be for any who want to walk with Jesus to have the joy of serving the Lord in larger measure than you can serve Him now. If you're a Jesus follower, isn't that a reward to pursue? Oh my goodness. So let's talk briefly about the application this morning. Every church has strengths and weaknesses. Thyatira is almost the opposite of the church we saw in Ephesus, the first church. Ephesus was strong in truth and doctrine, but you remember, they'd lost their first love. Jesus congratulates Thyatira for how they love each other. They're strong in love, but they're weak in discernment and weak in protecting the church from false doctrine and immoral behavior. Ephesus, that church is overbalanced on truth. Thyatira is overbalanced on love. And I suggest to you that sometimes a church's greatest strength can become its greatest weakness. Ephesus and Thyatira, two churches had two very different approaches to questionable issues, didn't they? Ephesus came down hard on anything that smelled like it was wandering from the truth, uh, so much so that they were not careful, they were not graceful, but the Thyatira church not wanting conflict maybe or perhaps being too gracious about doctrine that would damage, they were slow to respond and needed to confront but wouldn't do it. Both report cards are docked by Jesus. And it's possible for our greatest strength to become our weakness. Uh, I don't know, I haven't heard about anyone at Lakewood teaching false doctrine or preaching that immorality is acceptable. Uh, our critique from Jesus is probably going to look different from Thyatira. But could it be that the very strength of our ministries, especially in those years 
that we look back on and call Lakewood's glory days. Could it be that they sowed the seeds of pride that the Lord has needed to humble in us? I don't have a conclusion about that. That's just a question to consider. But it is worth praying about. Second, we've got to notice the dangers of compromise with the value system of our world. You've got to notice that. Hear me, believer. On this issue of tolerance, American society's huge value is we tolerate everything and anything. And when the church won't tolerate it within its fellowship, they look so narrow and judgmental. But dare we become more tolerant than Jesus? I don't think so. Listen, Jesus still loves those who are confused about their identity, confused about their reason for living, those who have been seduced or coerced into the immorality of our society. He loves them and he wants us to love them. It's possible for us in our own lives to, though, let down our guard and to soft pedal our need for godliness and holiness. It's possible for us to excuse ourselves by telling ourselves that we're not as bad as so-and-so and to give ourselves permission to play with sin and sow the seeds of our own personal painful spiritual discipline. What does Hebrews 12 say? Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. I want to tell you, Jesus is asking you to live his way, rejecting the corrupt values of our society. Jesus is saying, do you have ears to hear what I'm saying? Cup your ear to hear what Jesus is saying. Don't close your ears so that all you can hear is the culture around you. Putting your hands over your ears just says, I'd rather live with compromise than to live with conviction. We live in a culture of compromise like Thyatira in the midst of a culture of compromise. Jesus asks us to live by conviction, listening to him more than listening to the voices of our world. And let's come back to that critical application we made for the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians 4, 14 and 15, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful desires. You get that? We are subject to be tossed to and fro by crazy doctrines, human cleverness, deceitful schemes, unless, read the rest, unless we speak the truth in Love, balanced, loving, honesty. And again, lastly, hope. Hope. 
Jesus loves this church in Thyatira as far as they've wandered from correct doctrine. Hope for this church. Hope for the individuals within this church. He loves Jezebel, Jesus does, whomever she is. He hates her sin. He loves her nevertheless and is hopeful that she repents, eager desiring her to come home. There's still time for her to repent. Not much, but there's still time. And as long as there is still breath, there is still a chance. And I want you to hear this. There are no lost causes with Jesus. And what he wants more than anything is for you and me to come close and and let him love us and let him release us from those temptations, those want-tos that have tied us up in guilt and shame for too long. By the way, some of us, when we see that word temptation, we think about something nasty and ugly that nobody would want. That's not temptation. Temptation is temptation because I like that, even though it might kill me. And today, you need to get serious about following Jesus and living life his way and letting him guide you in paths of righteousness. Listen, maybe today's sermon's been tough on you. We all have regrets. We all have made mistakes. I want you to hear this. Jesus welcomes us to come and lay down our regrets and our mistakes and start doing life his way. His truth will heal you. His Truth will set you free. If you've been uncomfortable with this message, I'm sorry about that. Sometimes the Word of God hurts, but the Word of God never harms. It will set you free. Jesus says, if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can leave here clean today. Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You can leave here free today. And you're not sitting among people who are perfect. You're sitting among people who are forgiven. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone. All things are become new. Jesus says, I'll give you a new heart. You can be clean. You can be free. You can be brand new. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, that's for you. And if you've been walking away from Christ in disobedience, He wants to turn you around. Let Him. Let's pray. Thank you for being bold with us, God. Your word is truth. Won't let us deceive ourselves. Won't let us hide from reality. It speaks truth. And um, I'm so thankful for what you have promised for us. 
And Lord, now we come to this time in the service when we want to celebrate communion. We want to we want to remember what you did on the cross of Calvary for us, because there at the cross you provided for our forgiveness, our 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 liberty, our newness. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Amen.